I'm ABC's Aaron Katursky, and this is Bringing America Back, What You Need to Know. The Centers for Disease Control warned the nation today the coronavirus pandemic is not over. Infections are rising in 21 states. Many of them had a relatively small number of cases at the outset of the pandemic, but now confront the virus right as their economies reopen. Arkansas, which is moving into the second phase of reopening, could face a shortage of intensive care beds. Arizona ICUs are near capacity, and Alabama just reported its largest single-day increase in COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations. Dr. Ellen Eaton is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. What's causing the increase? Yeah, so in the last couple of weeks, we've gone from seeing about 200 to 300 cases a day to closer to 800 and even um, approaching 900 cases a day in the state of Alabama. That has to be worrying. I would say that most of us who are in infectious diseases and certainly our colleagues who are hospital medicine, critical care docs, we are all very concerned and anxious about what the next few months will hold, not just for our county and state, but I would say also for surrounding communities as well. Do we know why it's happening now? Why the increase in Alabama? So great question. I would say that there's still a lot of unanswered questions. Um, in general, a lot of us who are infectious diseases experts anticipated that Alabama and the South as a whole would do poorly with coronavirus. We know we have an aging comorbid population, meaning they have a lot of underlying medical conditions. And we knew that our public health infrastructure in general in Alabama and surrounding southern states is lacking to respond even to our routine infections, much less a pandemic. So we anticipated we would do poorly once coronavirus hit. I think many of us were surprised that it's taken longer. So cases initially were international travel, and we saw hot spots along New England, the East Coast, urban areas. And then into Birmingham, Alabama, where our first case in the state was diagnosed. But we had some early interventions in Jefferson County and Birmingham specifically, including stay-home policy. We have um, a face covering ordinance for Birmingham. And we're seeing um, fewer cases, actually, in the Jefferson County, Birmingham area than we initially anticipated. But what we have seen is that our surrounding communities down um, towards Montgomery, Alabama, they did not have early or restrictive policy. And what we're starting to see now is a lot of those communities have really exhausted their healthcare resources. So this is less second wave, more a continuation of the, of the first wave, at least for Alabama. Yes, certainly a lot of us had flattened our curves. We were not pleased with the continued number of cases. We are certainly starting to become increasingly concerned now that our case count has gone up significantly, really since Memorial Day. And and some other areas, what, just may not have taken it as seriously? That's possible. I think it was hard for some of our neighboring communities and certainly southern communities to really take it seriously when they saw one or two cases, very few hospitalized cases. And by the time they started seeing a significant number in their hospitals and ERs, the infections were already transmitted widely across the community. So what's the best recommendation now? How do you think is best to try and contain this outbreak? Yeah, it's a great question. And as I mentioned, we are still learning about the infection. Early on, we were recommending very vigorous hand hygiene, physical distancing, and encouraging masks. And I think the data over the last few weeks is really enforcing the importance of masking, not to replace hand hygiene or 
uh, physical distancing, but in addition to. So we're seeing from not just overseas, but also in the U.S., examples where infections were prevented because everyone involved in an interaction had a mask on, a cloth mask. Dr. Ellen Eaton at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. In Oregon, Governor Kate Brown put reopening on hold. Health officials in Oregon are monitoring an increase in COVID infections just as Portland was about to begin its phased reopening. Restaurants and personal care services, which had planned to open today, must remain closed. The increase in infections in several parts of the country worries Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Don't throw all caution to the wind so that you can open up and help the economy by getting jobs back and doing things like that. But that doesn't mean that you walk around without a mask, that you jump into a crowd, that you stop washing your hands, that you stop doing the things that are important. Fauci told our Powerhouse Politics podcast he is concerned about the health impacts of protests and President Trump's plan to resume political rallies in arenas. The best way that you can avoid either acquiring or transmitting infection is to avoid crowded places, to wear a mask whenever you're outside, and if you can do both, avoid the congregation of people and do the mask, that's great. There is a reality, though, that the Centers for Disease Control acknowledged today, that some of us are going to protest or go to political rallies, get together on a nice summer weekend. Dr. Jay Butler issued cookout advice. If you want to gather with friends for a cookout, as much as possible, use single-serve options and remind guests to wash their hands before and after eating. Buying a car is different now. For a long time, dealers pampered customers in showrooms with free Wi-Fi and comfy seating and fancy coffee. These days, buyers do a lot of the work themselves, using online tools to evaluate a car before purchase. Auto sales are down about 60% in the pandemic, and so car companies are improving the digital experience to try to entice new customers. Bob Welby, Senior Director of Operations for Infinity, how's the whole car buying thing in a pandemic? Yeah, the, uh, it's it's moving more and more digital. I mean, we are kind of hitting a little bit of a new normal where um, while some of this activity existed, consumers are more and more interested in, in having a distance-based car shopping experience. Is the showroom dead? Oh, absolutely not. I don't see that happening at all. I think um, I think the uh, our studies would point to kind of a larger majority of customers wanting to do more of the experience digitally. Um, but with vehicle purchases for majority of people being one of the largest purchases they make in their life besides their home, there's still very much a need for you seem to, to actually see and touch the car and then to actually have some of that that interpersonal connection around the purchase. Um, so we still very, very much expect to see that uh, be a part of the story. Um, but we absolutely do see a shift to more of this call for convenience for consumers. Can you ever replace the test drive? I think the question's more is is how how much is it going to be replaced for consumers? I don't think you ever completely replace a test drive, and it's to that point of being such a large purchase for consumers, and the and the vehicle itself being such an important experience for them. The feel of the the car, how they fit into the interior, how it smells, how it touches. Um, so it's I think it's very difficult to completely replace that. Um, but again, with the advent of digital technologies, we're seeing customers that are doing more of that research and getting more and more comfortable you know, using digital tools before they actually get to the the experience of sitting in the vehicle itself uh, to experience it. Walk us through that a little bit. I want to purchase a new Infinity. How do I go about it? Yeah, so I think for a certain set of consumers and a growing number, they're starting that research online. 
Uh, and then from there, it gets to just an increasing degree of digital tools to interact with the dealership. Um, everything from questions about features, uh, about, you know, availability of features, uh, questions about the details of the car. Then when it gets into the actual transaction itself, uh, more and more of that uh, be happening online. Um, financing options, uh, negotiation of terms and payments. Um, we're just seeing more of that happening digitally. Uh, and then when that time comes, we're actually seeing in the place that we're moving towards is flexibility for the customers to complete this in dealership. Uh, or to complete it someplace else, like their home or their place of work. So it's like online dating, but for cars. You can kind of interact, figure it all out, and then when you finally want to meet up, there's that I'd moment of connection. Most customers have a love affair with their cars. I think that's an appropriate analogy. Yeah. The, uh, so, yeah, we are seeing that a little bit where uh, you see in the online dating there, and then uh, when they want to make that commitment, the uh, it's the, the variety of uh, ways it's available to them. So, yeah. Are you seeing customers who, who are still uncomfortable coming into a showroom such that you'll bring it right to their driveway? Yeah, absolutely. Um, certainly right now. And I think the thing that we're paying a lot of attention to is what we think is the new normal. Um, so, yes, certainly that's there now with the needs for social distancing. And, and you see differences across the country um, based on uh, where it's a little more severe than others. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, they, we're seeing a lot of activity around uh, remote test drives uh, and service pickup and drop off. So more and more of those features are being kind of brought by our teams to consumers. Uh, and we're seeing and we're seeing interest grow for it. And, I, and we think it's going to continue uh, after uh, we get through this together. Bob Welby, the Senior Director of Operations at Infinity. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to Amy Robach. Thank you, Aaron. Joining me now is ABC News Chief Medical Correspondent, Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, big headline here many cases rising in some states quite sharply, actually. And there are a lot of questions and theories and concerns about this. A lot of people had speculated that as we got into these warmer months, that we would see a decrease in this virus. What do we know right now? Well, I think right now, as we're seeing these cases go up, it is really important to realize this is not speculation anymore. This is based on confirmed cases. So here's what we know at this point. There are at least 20 states that are reporting dramatic increases in their cases. Cell phone data is confirming that just what we're seeing, that people are moving around more up to about two thirds the level that they were before the lockdown or shutdown went into effect. And right now, the cases here in the U.S. represent a quarter of the world's cases of COVID-19. So this is a, a major issue. It's real. What are the theories behind why? Well, there are always many theories, and it's hard to know, especially now, six months in, exactly what is leading in terms of responsibility. But the three largest theories are, one, that people are just out more. They're kind of disregarding these CDC recommendations about precautions and social distancing. Quarantine fatigue. For sure. And that is absolutely a real thing. Obviously, with more testing will come more cases. And the other thing is that it's possible that this is the natural spread or evolution of this virus across the U.S. Remember, it started here on the East Coast and in the uh, Northwest, but now we're seeing it really infiltrate the South. And a lot of public health officials have been very vocal about their level of concern, including Dr. Anthony Fauci, who said this isn't over. 
What's unknown at this point? Well, the biggest question right now is if these surges get to such a point that it actually triggers another shutdown. We have to remember that the healthcare system's capacity is really at the forefront of that consideration. We don't know yet what will happen as we get into the fall and winter flu season. We don't know what the peak will be, how high our cases will climb, and we really don't know what the benefit is will be of this aggressive non-pharmaceutical intervention. So the masks, the distancing, the staying at home, if those need to be implemented again, will that get us back to where we were before or will we need to do more and not get back as low as we were before? All right, Dr. Jen, thank you. Well, Key West, Florida is synonymous with summer, but this year the pandemic has left many wondering what tourist season on the islands might actually look like. Here to discuss her community and how it's handling the coronavirus crisis is Key West Mayor Terry Johnson. Mayor Johnson, thanks so much for being with us today. And I know you closed visitors for nearly two months, but now the Keys back open June 1st. And now that we're about two weeks past that date, how concerned are you about a spike in cases there? Well, we saw our single largest spike yesterday in the state of Florida of about 1,491 cases. And in Key West, we have had, I mean, we've been doing the right things. Uh, We reacted very quickly. We closed down our community and uh, we instituted a number of protective measures for our residents. As of June 1st, when we opened up for tourism season, uh, we're seeing uh, a number of people that have come into our community right now that aren't necessarily following our guidelines or restrictions. So I have a concern there. Um, we would certainly like to welcome in uh, all of our tourism, but we would like it to be respectful and responsible. Most businesses in Key West are now open, including gyms and bars. So what safety measures have you taken to try and prevent the spread of the virus in those high-risk locations? Well, first of all, uh, at the door, we're taking a no-touch temperature. Um, Masks are required in most locations, and we are social distancing, uh, certainly hand-washing. But I think the unique thing about Key West is that we have a mandatory facial covering regulation when you're not able to social distance. How are local businesses doing now that Key West has reopened? Well, we're opening up slowly and and safely. Most of our businesses are at 50 percent capacity. But as of June 1st, uh, we're seeing our restaurants starting to fill to their capacity levels. We're seeing the bars starting to fill. Our lodging uh, is coming back. And we think that probably uh, we're making some really good progress, but we're doing it safely. We're doing it cautiously to bring back our economy to uh, where it was uh, pre-COVID. Key West, very popular port for cruise ships. A lot of residents there, perhaps rightfully so, are concerned that once those cruises set sail again, the islands could see an increase in cases. How are you addressing that concern? Well, right now, as of today, we do not have any scheduled cruise ships into our port of Key West. And I do want to mention at this point that we also have three referendum that are going on our November 3rd ballot that limit the types Mm -hmm. and sizes of cruise ships that would be allowed into Key West based on disembarkations, based on on size of the ship and based on their environmental records. All right. We certainly appreciate all the efforts I know that you are continuing to put in place there to protect your residents. Key West Mayor Terry Johnson, thanks for being with us today. Thanks so much, Amy. 
The COVID-19 pandemic has had a debilitating effect on our economy, with many small businesses struggling to survive. Here to tell us how his company is giving back to small businesses at this very difficult time is Moet Hennessy, North America president and CEO, Seth Kaufman. Seth, thanks for being with us. And we know that your company is made up of a number of very well-known wines and spirits. How has it been affected by this pandemic? Um, You know, in in light of the fact that uh, a good portion of our business, bars, restaurants, hotels, nightclubs, have essentially been shut down and are just starting to reopen, the business has been really, really resilient across many of our brands. And that's especially true for Hennessy. And Hennessy is a brand and a business that's always given back to its communities. And it's one of the reasons why I'm really excited to be here talking to you about our new program, Unfinished Business. Yeah, tell us all about it. Unfinished Business Initiative. What does it entail? Yeah, well, like I said, Hennessy has always been um, giving back to the communities and enriching culture. And it's impossible for us to ignore the fact that black, Asian-American, Latinx communities have been hit harder by COVID than any other communities. And small business owners in those communities have really, really taken the brunt of the hit. So Unfinished Business is a program that's meant to provide immediate capital and ongoing support and resources to those minority small business owners. We're working with three incredible organizations, 100 Black Men, the Hispanic Federation, and the Asian American Business Development Center. And they're going to be working with us, and there'll be applications through unfinishedbusiness.us starting June 22nd. And these incredible organizations are going to ensure that support gets to where it's needed most. And these organizations will select the grant recipients from those applications on that platform. Yes, let's talk about the selection process because I'm imagining there are plenty of people out there who own a small business who need help from this initiative. What are the requirements and how do they apply? Yeah, um, so it's important to us that the help gets to where it's needed the most. And that's why we're working with these three organizations. So we have really given them the ability to choose the recipients of the grants. So anyone can start applying June 22nd on unfinishedbusiness.us. And then these three organizations, 100 Black Men, the Hispanic Federation, and the Asian American Business Development Center will be selecting the grant recipients and then giving the capital. And that's where the, the support begins. Obviously, you know, we are going through dual crises right now in this country. So we have COVID-19 and then the ongoing protests and calls for change in regards to racial inequality. What steps is your company taking to address those concerns? Yeah, um, I mean, I'm, I'm deeply, deeply saddened by the uh, systemic racism that uh, George Floyd and so many others have been victims of. And as a company, a lot of our brands and the company itself were speaking out aggressively against racism. We've also donated to several organizations that are specifically fighting against systemic racism. But there's so much more that I think we can do. So inside the company, we have a very advanced diversity and inclusion agenda, but it's not necessarily where we need to be. So we're really leaning in. We've been spending a lot of time talking to our employees through open forums. We have a a lot of initiatives in place. And my goal, as well as my leadership team's goal, is really to work with our employee base to make changes, to continue to implement actions that create the most inclusive culture that supports all types of diversity. And we're not going to stop until we get there. Well, Seth Kaufman, we certainly appreciate all that you're doing for your company, your employees and for the community at large. Thank you.
Thanks so much. Up next, when we come back, Dr. Jen Ashton joins us once again, this time with answers to your coronavirus questions. And on this Finance Friday, some much-needed dollars and cents talks for grads heading out into an unsteady world. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to What You Need to Know. We have Dr. Jen Ashton here. And Dr. Jen, you've been fielding questions for the Mm -hmm. past three months. Mm -hmm. And the one you say that keeps popping up recently is, can I go here? Can I do this? Can I be with this person? And there's a way to try and make that determination for every individual. Exactly. And it comes down to everyone has to weigh their own risk versus benefit. But I'm getting this on social media. I'm getting this from my patients. And it really comes down to four elements Time, space, people, and place. So let's break those down. Time, how long will you be in that various situation, place, environment? The CDC says more than 15 minutes is considered a longer-term exposure. So again, that's the time factor. Space, how far apart are you? It's a minimum (laughs) of six feet. That's what the CDC recommends, seven feet better than six feet. So that's the space People, how densely crowded is that area? We've heard the CDC say 10 people, 50 people. We're seeing, we're hearing different numbers. The bottom line is the more densely crowded it is, the higher your risk and space and and place. Are you indoors or outdoors? The good news is in the summer, we do think that just because of ventilation, wind, that outdoors is slightly safer than indoors. But I think if you think about those four factors, it can help you with these decisions. That's very important. All right, next question. Plans for schools to reopen are all over the map. What should parents know to keep their kids safe? Well, you and I as moms are hoping that our kids are back in college in the fall. Um, The answer to this question strongly depends on age. I always say with children, you want to start with their spirit and their emotions. You want to reassure them because so many children are so frightened by what we've just come through. Uh, And you want to use it as an opportunity to educate them. There are germs all over the place. They are not going anywhere. It's about the basic steps, as, as my mom, who is a pediatric nurse, used to tell me, control the controllables. So hand washing, coughing or sneezing into your elbow, and then doing the things that can keep all of us healthy, getting enough sleep, getting enough exercise, and eating well. All right, next question. Why was a lung transplant required for the recovered COVID-19 patient in Chicago? This story made worldwide news. It was the first double lung transplant done in the U.S. reportedly for COVID-19, one of the first in the world. Most of the time, double lung transplants are done for for pulmonary fibrosis. Um, This one was done for a very young woman in her 20s who had severe disease. She was out of options. She couldn't oxygenate the rest of her body. She was going into liver failure, kidney failure. She had developed sepsis and an infection from the damage to her lungs. And her doctors and her team uh, at Northwestern literally gave this her only chance. So um, really inspiring. It will not become the standard of care, sadly, for severe COVID. There just aren't enough organ donors. No, that makes sense. Next question, how effective are temperature checks to keep the virus out of businesses? This is such a common question because it's really so many people want to use this because of the optics. It gives us potentially something to do. The short answer is we don't really know. There was one study published in JAMA that looked at almost 6,000 patients here in the New York City area admitted to a hospital with COVID-19, only about a third of them had a fever on admission. Oh my, wow. So there are problems with, we don't know how accurate it is. And then in medicine, we use 100.4 degrees as our cutoff for a fever. So what happens if I check your temperature and you're 100.3? 
What happens if you're 100.0? That's technically a low-grade temperature. Does that person get in? Do they not get in? How many people actually walk around with fevers and feel perfectly fine? And we know so many people can be asymptomatic with COVID-19. So we don't really know what role this will have. It's still evolving. Yeah, it sounds like a good idea, right. but in practice... Mm, maybe, maybe not yet. The verdict is still out. All right, Dr. Jen, thank you very much. And you can submit questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J Ashton. Everything has changed for recent graduates now dubbed the class of COVID-19. Before the outbreak, college seniors were on the heels of heading into the real world full of opportunities. But due to this pandemic, well, now they are entering possibly the worst job market since the Great Depression. Here with a graduate's guide to money in the age of coronavirus is Money.com editor Caitlin Heron. So it's not just the job market that has these grads worried, but for many, it's how they're going to start paying back their student loans. A lot on their plates. Any action plan you can share to help? Yeah, well, money is a stressful topic every year at college graduation. But this year, like you said, it's especially important because they're dealing with an unprecedented level of job loss. Um, they're going to probably be having reduced wages for a while. And so if they can learn um, some basic personal finance strategies about budgeting, saving, paying off debt responsibly, that's really going to set them on a, you know, a stronger footing for the rest of their lives. That's true. These are hard lessons to learn, but ones you can take with you for the rest of your life. So let's talk about the job situation or the lack thereof. Mm -hmm. Uh, What do you recommend that these grads can do for income in the meantime? Maybe they're not going to be going into the careers they thought initially. Yeah, so we've seen entry-level job postings are down uh, dramatically, and it's probably going to be that way throughout the rest of this year at least. So the reality is they're probably going to have to take a paycheck wherever they can get it. So we've seen um, increased hiring in grocery stores, warehouse, delivery services. Um, There's also a lot of jobs right now in e-commerce and some jobs in healthcare, some niche jobs like a coronavirus contract tracer. So if you have to do one of those jobs, obviously that's probably not what you envisioned when you were studying in college. But I would just remember that, you know, hiring experts tell us that having any job experience on your resume is better than nothing. And so there are ways that you can talk about the skills and the things you learned in in these jobs um, and ways that you can pivot those in future job interviews for the job that you actually want. What are some tips on how grads can master saving right now and budgeting? Yes. Well, so if you are lucky enough to be able to move back in with a relative and pay reduced rent or live rent free, that's going to be one of the smartest moves you can make right now, honestly, because if you're only bringing in a little bit of money, then all of that money can go uh, towards savings or to uh, paying off debt. If that's not, you know, if that's not a reality, then you're going to have to really pay close attention to your budget. Look at exactly how much money is coming in and look at your f- fixed expenses and um, see if there's any areas you can you can cut. And I, and I really want to stress right now, if you can get into the habit of saving, that's really important. We've seen the importance of having a, an emergency savings fund as it's been, you know, just about three months now since that first wave of layoffs. So most personal finance experts recommend three to six months of expenses in an emergency fund. And now they're really pushing on that six months of expenses. And it's going to take you a while to build that up. So me personally, when I graduated and I looked at six months of expenses, it was I felt like I could never hit that goal. And so I would I would recommend graduates break it down into something more manageable. Maybe they can only afford to put you know $20 a week into a savings account. But eventually that's going to build up and that's better than nothing. Exactly. All right. Any last advice you want to give those recent grads out there? Yeah, you know, I would say we saw when all the millennials graduated into the Great Recession that um, there were a couple years of depressed wages. Some of that they're still dealing with, but we've also seen a lot of innovation. There were startups founded. Um, there were, you know, new, new, frankly, completely new jobs created, right? So 
I guess my advice would be don't despair. Um, you certainly, all the graduates got a really rough deal, but um, this is temporary and, and you know, you're going to come out stronger for having lived through this. All right. Caitlin Mole here. Thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Well, it is Faith Friday here at ABC, and today we are talking to a pastor right on the front lines of Minneapolis whose church has been converted now into a food distribution center and clinic. We want to welcome the Reverend Angela Kebab of the Holy Trinity Lutheran Church. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. And we should note, your church is just two miles from where George Floyd was murdered, close to many of the buildings that were burnt down during the riots. Tell us how your church has taken on a new role during this time. Well, first of all, Amy, I want to say thank you so much for having me. You probably don't know this, but we have had coffee on several occasions in my living room. <laughs> I love so hearing it's that. nice to be here with you. <laughs> so our church is probably a block, maybe two blocks from the police station from the third precinct. So that's where a lot of the... Um, uprising happened with the fires and the demonstrations. So that first night we became a makeshift medical center where we received people who were wounded from rubber bullets, tear gas, or just needed to get out of the fray. They were just, just needed a safe place, just needed sanctuary. So that's how we initially started. And yeah, we are about two miles from where George Floyd was actually murdered And it's also steps away from where my kids go to elementary school. Mm. So um, our church has a deep history of being a justice-seeking church. And this is really remarkable. Not only have you had an amazing surplus of donations, but now the church is going to take it a step further, raising $100,000 to help as many people and places get back on their feet as possible. How do you do that? Well, word of mouth, we've been putting things out on Facebook, any social media platform, uh, talking to our our social circles to try to raise this money so that we can put it directly into the hands of the people that need it the most. People were, some people were displaced because of the fires and with COVID and people losing their jobs, uh, money was always already scarce. So this just puts more uh, power in our hands to be able to share and be the church for the whole community. That's incredible. At a time when your community and the world needs it more than ever before, how do you boost resilience during these hopeless times? And for so many people, this is, you know, this is a dual crisis we're facing right now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Before COVID struck, we had the pandemic of poverty, mm-hmm. the pandemic of uh, institutionalized racism, the pandemic of oppression, the pandemic of, of unemployment, the pandemic of homelessness. And then here comes COVID. It's like, not now, COVID, not now. <laughs> We've got enough on our plates. So what I've been encouraging people to do is sit with their feelings. There, there is a such thing as lament and lamentation, and that's holy and it's sacred. And it's okay to be confused and disoriented and even angry in times like this. So I'm inviting people to embrace their full, the full spectrum of their human feelings and their emotions. So they embrace that, that full spectrum. And then how do they then channel that into positivity and change and love when they're feeling something other than that oftentimes? Yes. So one thing that's, that we see is that even people who are struggling are also giving. Mm. Some people who are receiving um 
uh, food and supplies one day at our food distribution. The next day, then they were volunteering and helping other people. So sometimes that helps, just um, uh, continuing to be generous to other people, even when we have our own lack and our own limitations. How do you keep your spirits lifted? How do you get through a yes, you're giving, yes, you're helping, but how do you personally handle all of this that you're you dealing know, with? Personally, Amy, I'm, I'm really struggling. You know, to be honest, personally, I'm struggling. Uh, a few days ago, I was typing an email and I went to write in peace. Mm. But then I had to say in pieces mm. because I'm feeling really fragmented right now. And so I cling to some of the truths that I hold dear uh, from the scriptures. And I uh, it, sometimes you have to encourage yourself. And so uh, the Bible tells us that David encouraged himself before the Lord. So sometimes I take a moment to encourage myself. I'm actually on vacation. <laughs> you know what? So this is where go so I go to the living room. Then I go to the kitchen. That's my vacation. That's it. <laughs> a vacation right in your own home. We really right needed we really needed to hear that and we so appreciate your time and all of your beautiful words of inspiration. Thank you for being with us, Reverend. We wish you the very best and I can't wait to have coffee with you again on Monday. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Amy. Quarantine has forced many kids to develop new hobbies. Well, one remarkable nine-year-old in Kansas has taken her passion for writing to a whole new level by starting her very own weekly newsletter for the local community. Joining us now is third grader and editor-in-chief of Westwood Hills Weekly, Claire Troutwine. Claire, thank you for being with us. Tell us what inspired you to start the Westwood Hills Weekly. Um, well, it kind of just happened. You know, um, it was the first week of quarantine. Everybody, um, we were just taking a walk. And before, I had had an idea to start a newsletter, but that idea never came true. But now, it has, which is (laughs) really fun. Yeah, that's awesome. Tell me what's inside your newsletter. What do you feature? I have, like, holidays and birthdays, usually. I have a inspiring quote. So you're informing people, you're inspiring creativity in people. What is your goal with this local newsletter? What do you hope people get from reading it? Um, well, I just hope people get happy and be happy with it. I just want people to feel happy and like it a lot because that's my only goal. I, that's, the be, that's the best goal of all. And I know, yes, you are editor-in-chief, but who else is helping you in your family? Well, um, my mom kind of edits, too. Um, my dad prints, and my sister also helps edit it, and she also helps me deliver it. I know that you need a lot of help getting this out every week, and you've been using an iPad from school that you unfortunately have to give back soon. So we have a big surprise for you. Bubby's Ice Cream heard about your story and was inspired by all that you're doing for the kids in your community. So they are giving you $500 so you can purchase an iPad or a tablet of your own. What do you think? Oh, my gosh. Wow, that is amazing. Well, we know you're going to do amazing things with it. So, Claire, thank you so much for being with us today. And you made us happy. So your goal was accomplished today. Yes, it was. (laughs) Have a wonderful weekend, sweetheart. (laughs) Thank you. 
And final thoughts from Jen Ashton. We're, we're grinning from uh, you. I know. That's a hard one to follow. Um, as we head into this weekend, Amy, and we close out this week, I'm really thinking of this pandemic and our country's health holistically. You know, in medicine, we specialize, but we are trained and educated in the entire body. And so, too, in public health, a lot of the focus is on COVID, but we're still focused on mental health. And for people who are thinking it's just about COVID, understand that if you have a heart attack, if you're in a car accident, if you break a bone and you need to go to an emergency room that's underwater dealing with COVID patients, this could affect the care of so many other people. So we all have the power uh, to take steps to protect everyone, but there's a lot at stake. It's not about me. It's about we. <laughs> Got that. That's, that's a right. good way to end this Friday. Thank you so much, Dr. Thanks. Jen. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.